Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. Hey everybody, it's good to see you today, uh, those of you that I can see, um, those of you on our other campuses, and those of you watching online, as well as those of you that are with Cornerstone inside in the prisons in the western United States. Uh, I have just returned uh, from Israel, and it was awesome, but it's also so good to be back uh, after having walked where Jesus walked, uh, now back to being uh, where I usually walk. And, uh, but you can't go on these trips without it really refreshing your friendship uh, with God. Uh, but I missed you, and it's good to be home uh, and be able to enter into this series where we're mining Luke's gospel, asking ourselves the question, who is Jesus really? And Luke is the perfect person to answer that question. Uh, that's why he wrote his gospel. Uh, in his opening remarks, he tells us that before he wrote, he carefully investigated uh, all of the evidence available and interviewed many of the uh, eyewitnesses to Jesus' words and actions. And he writes this, I can tell you I've written an accurate and trustworthy account of Christ's life so that you can be certain of the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Luke, by the time he writes, has traveled the Gentile world with the Apostle Paul. He's been in Jerusalem with him as well. And it's as if he knows that in the years to come, after the eyewitnesses all pass away and the centuries pile up, then the skeptics will come forward uh, and question the truthfulness of the gospel accounts. So he checks all the facts and in the first century talks to everyone who was there with Christ and double checks everything and then writes these two books, historical narratives, both the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And he opens his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist, and then a few months later, the birth of Jesus. And before Christ is even born, his mother Mary and his aunt Elizabeth declare that Mary's baby is much more than just another uh, Jewish child coming into the world. Elizabeth cries out, this baby is my Lord and my God. And that is a, an unusual thing to say about your nephew. And Mary says something unusual about her child. My soul magnifies the Lord, she calls him. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Soon Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and on the eighth day, Mary and Joseph climbed these steps into the temple. I've just been sitting on uh, these steps uh, where Mary and Joseph walked up into the temple, coming from Bethlehem, and consecrated their firstborn son, to God. And Luke tells us that once they got into the temple grounds, they were met by an elderly man, uh, Simeon, who had been promised by God that he would not die before he saw Israel's Messiah. And Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and then said, 
Sovereign Lord, you can take me to heaven. I've seen him. My eyes have seen your salvation for all nations. Then an elderly prophetess named Anna approached them, giving thanks to God for Jesus and telling everyone that this baby is Israel's redeemer. So this would have been crazy for Mary and Joseph because they've never met these people. And yet they're confirming what Gabriel had told them nine months previous about who Jesus really was. And Joseph knew that Jesus was not his biological son. And Mary knew that as well. But now to have people walking up to them, perfect strangers, and in the Spirit of God confirming to them what they knew about their son would have been, well, crazy. When Jesus was 12 years old, they're back in Jerusalem at Passover, and they lost him for three frantic days. And they finally found him in the temple courts discussing Scripture with the Bible teachers that were there. And the Scripture says the teachers were amazed at the depths of this young man's spiritual understanding. But Mary wasn't as amazed as she was ticked off because she had been frantically uh, wondering how she was going to answer to God for losing his son. Uh, And so when she scolded Jesus, Jesus' response was not apologetic at all. Uh, Why, he said, why were you looking for me everywhere? You should have known where I was, that I would be found in my father's house. And so even at age 12, Jesus seemed to understand his place in Israel and his position, and he was most at home there in his father's house. Even though the fact that he called the temple his father's house would have prob- was probably the first blasphemous, blasphemous thing that uh, we have on record of him saying. No Jew would say that the temple was their father's house. And yet Jesus was so comfortable talking like this because his true father was the most high God. So fast forward now, Jesus is 30, and he's at uh, a spot, if not this exact spot, very near to this spot, uh, the Jordan River. And uh, some people expect the Jordan River to be, to look like a a California stream that you could drink out of, and in reality, it comes through lots of farmland, and, and that's just, it's actually dirty with dirt, not pollution, but you get down in that water and you go, oh, okay, I get it. Uh, I'm going to put my head down in that. Uh, But uh, this is a a holy site because they have found at this site Byzantine churches that go back to the 350s where people who had lived just a couple of centuries earlier said this is where John was baptizing and this was most likely where Jesus was baptized. So we would go to Israel, we go, and whether you've been baptized or not, you're baptized here. Just as you get in touch with what happened to Jesus that day, as the, 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 the dove descended upon him and the voice boomed from heaven, you are my precious son, and I'm pleased with you. So Luke starts his gospel just by going after who Jesus is, so that later the reader, whether it's Gentile or Jew, would say, all right, Luke is not saying that this is a great man, a prophet who did a lot of good stuff, uh, somehow mysteriously worked miracles. He actually is the son of God come to earth. Luke goes on and tells us that right after his baptism, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and then returns to his hometown, Nazareth, to this synagogue. And I don't think they had plastic chairs back then, but it's amazing to be, to walk on the same floor that Jesus would have uh, walked on as uh, this is his hometown. 
And on Sabbath, Luke tells us, Jesus went to synagogue when he visited Nazareth as an adult, and the Isaiah scroll was handed to him, and Jesus began to read from what we know as chapter 61. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And these are Isaiah's words from 70 years ago, predicting Messiah, the anointed one. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. The time of the Lord's favor has come. And then Jesus sat down and everyone was staring at him because it was typical then for a rabbi to make a short application after reading the scripture. And Jesus' application was this. Everything I just read is fulfilled in me. I'm the guy Isaiah was writing about. Well, you can imagine how shocked uh, his, the guys that had grown up with him in fourth grade Sunday school were to hear that this, their, their friend had just kind of lost his marbles because he thinks he's the one that Isaiah predicted 700 years previous. And when Jesus saw the look on his face, he says, it doesn't surprise me that you don't accept me as that. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Just like Elisha had to go all the way to, to the widow at Zarephath, who wasn't even Jewish, and had to, because there wasn't, weren't there any widows in Israel that would take Elijah in? And, and Elisha, weren't there any lepers in, in, in Israel for Elisha to hear? Why did he have to go to the Syrian and heal him, name it? Well, now Jesus adds insult to injury because what he's saying is uh, this, the Messiah is, is, is as much for the Gentiles as he is for the Jews, and that was more for the hometown more than they could take. So they, they pushed Jesus out, clear out of town, up to uh, this precipice. This was just outside of Nazareth, uh, and threatened to push him off. But it wasn't his time to go, and he wasn't going to die in this way. And uh, so he mysteriously, uh, miraculously, slipped back through the crowd and slipped away. And for, for our knowledge, never returned to Nazareth again. So Jesus had become a polarizing figure. Uh, everyone had an opinion about him. He was impossible to ignore, driving out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. He brought a radical new interpretation to the Jewish scriptures. According to Jesus, the poor and hungry are blessed, and the rich and powerful are not. He challenged his listeners to love not only their own family, but also their worst enemies, and to do for others exactly what they would want done for them. He was constantly talking about this new kingdom with this new covenant and really a new set of rules where mercy is to triumph over judgment and anyone, regardless of ethnicity or gender, is invited to fellowship with God at every level. In, G in Jesus' kingdom, Gentile and Jew, male and female, Satan, sinner, were to sit at the same table. He demonstrated that by bringing healing and restoration to every type of person, hanging out with people that religion had already rejected or people who were working in religion. It didn't matter to Jesus as long as they were willing to listen about a new covenant that would replace an old and, and, and to see him as, as, as the son of God. They were welcome in his kingdom. So his preaching brought hope to a lot of people. But it caused others to passionately reject him, even his own family, who at one point came to collect their delusional brother and just take him home. Jesus refused and said, well, no, my, this isn't my family. My family are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. 
So that takes us up to today's text in Luke chapter 8, where I will be, uh, where Jesus demonstrates another facet of his authority to his disciples. Open your Bibles with me, Luke 8, 22. Luke 8, 22, uh, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where's your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, if this story had not been verified by eyewitnesses, there are two things about it that would be difficult to believe. Uh, One, that Jesus of Nazareth spoke to the wind and calmed the storm. And also, that while the storm was buffeting this fishing boat, Jesus was fast asleep. Both of these things uh, would have been hard to believe, especially once you understand the size of these boats. There is a first century fishing boat on display in a small museum on the Galilee. They found this first century boat uh, buried in the mud during a drought in 1986 when the shoreline of the Galilee drastically receded. And when you look at the size of this vessel, the thought of anyone sleeping in it in a storm is quite a stretch. These fishing boats were not that big. They would hold a small crew, some nets, uh, the sail, and hopefully later some fish. Yet the disciples told Luke that Jesus was sound asleep in their boat as the waves rocked and the water began to swamp the boat. And when they woke him, he rebuked the wind And it obeyed him. And at that, they were gobsmacked. Who is this? Who successfully rebukes the wind? How could they know the creator of barometric pressure was in their boat? I mean, they knew he was amazing, but this was a new level. See, it wasn't hard for them to believe that God could control the weather. Israel had long believed that God is the one who created The elements. Every child grew up believing that their God created sun and moon and earth and sky and water and wind. Uh, Even when he delivered them from Egypt, he did it by wreaking havoc in the skies. And then when they left Egypt, he parted the Red Sea. And then he takes them out of the wilderness and manna falls from heaven and water comes out of boulders. And and then when it was time for them to enter into the promised land, the, the Jordan backs up, and they walked across on dry land. It wasn't a stretch for these Jewish men to believe that Yahweh could calm the storm they were in. What was hard for them to understand was that Yahweh was in their boat, that Jesus was the Son of God and carried the authority over wind and waves. Now, everything they had already seen about him pointed to that reality. A few of them were there that day at his baptism. They were former followers of John the Baptist. They would have been there. They heard the voice booming from heaven. This is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. All of them had seen his ability to heal every ailment, even raise the dead. They had seen demons flee in his presence and heard them shrieking 
as they flew away. 5,000 families had been fed with a little boy's lunch. So they had seen a lot, and now they are seeing something different. His command over wind and waves. Isn't that amazing? You see, we've heard this story so many times that it loses its amazingness to us. I think it'd be good with us to read these stories and stop and go, yeah, I've heard that. What's, what's the point, Pastor? What's the application? No, the application is the story. This is your God. God who came to earth and then proved that he was God so that we would listen to him about the sacrifice that he was about to make so that we could enter into eternal life. But the miracles also are absolutely unbelievable. Unfortunately, when we've heard about them over and over, they kind of lose their shock value. I think it's good for us to slow down and read these stories and get into the boat with them to experience both the panic and then the peace in order for us to believe that Jesus could calm a 21st century storm. I mean, we say we believe in him. We say the stories are true, but then we hit a rough patch and all bets are off. Uh, you don't know what you really believe until you have to believe it. You don't know if you have faith until that's all you have. Until you are in a small boat being battered by big waves, until it seems that you're about to go under, whether it's your family or your business or your health, and, and it seems that Jesus is asleep and has been for a while, uh, it's not until a personal crisis hits that Jesus becomes personal. The Savior of the world becomes your Savior. The Savior of your soul also becomes the Savior of your marriage. You know, uh, you preachers will criticize the disciples. You'll hear this, this point being made, you know, uh, these guys are crazy. You know, if Jesus is in your boat, then your boat's not going to sink. That's true. But then our circumstances shift, and, and the wind whips up the waves, and we completely forget their story because somehow our story is worse. Our 21st century uh, dilemma is not like theirs. And soon we are just like they were, panicked. And trying to get Jesus to, to wake up so you can wake him up before we all drown together. You know, every weekend we gather as a church, and each weekend a different group of us is weathering a storm. Isn't that right? True or not? How many of you have come here on a weekend when you thought, I don't even want to go to church? Life just stinks so bad. I don't want to be around those happy Christians this weekend. You had that feeling before? I don't want to go to church. I, I, did someone come up to me and tell me that their prayer got answered? I, I'm just going to stay home. How many of you maybe are here this weekend? And you really had to talk yourself into being here. Or maybe it's the other way. You've, you've, you came last night and you came again today because you know you're trying to, 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 to enter into your, you're trying to, you know, Jesus is going to ask you a question, where's your faith? And you want to be able to answer, my faith is in Jesus. Because the wind and the waves have been terrifying you. I love this miracle too because in it, Jesus didn't heal a single person. There were no demons to cast out, just a small band of terrified friends huddled together in a small boat that was taking on water. And I think that when Jesus fell asleep, he had a smile on his face knowing what was going to happen. He allowed the panic 
before he could bring the peace in order to develop their faith. Friend, I, I know it, you don't like to hear it, but the, the, the trial you're going through is a good thing. If God allowed it and he hasn't rescued you yet, it's a good thing. And most likely, he's developing your faith. Now, that doesn't help you get out of the situation. I'm just telling you that you're going to look back on that and agree with me. You say, well, I'd like to get out of this situation. All right, well, have faith in Jesus. Find your faith. And then cry out to him, and let's see what he does. And I love how in this miracle, he changes the atmosphere around those that he loves so that he can change those that he loves. And that's how much he loves you. He can either give you strength to ride out the storm, or he can calm the storm. But either way, you're going to survive. I promise you. All right, let's keep reading. In verse 26, they arrive at the shore where a man facing a completely different type of storm uh, meets them. Pick it up in verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Whoa. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. So it's a homeless, mentally ill, naked demon-possessed man living in a graveyard. When she saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. Now, I want to remind you, this man has never met Jesus before. So who is speaking? Who's speaking here? Those demons are speaking. See, Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. You know, this reminds me of some folks that, that we meet on the streets where really what has happened to them uh, has not, society hasn't helped them in a way that helps them. And uh, this guy, you know, the best that his neighbors could do was to chain him so that he wouldn't hurt anybody else and, uh, and, and keep him under guard. And then he breaks the chains and runs away. And so he runs away to the graveyard because the Gentiles, this is a Gentile village, by the way. We'll, learn, we'll, we'll have proof of it in just a minute. Something to do with pork. Um, but uh, his, his neighbors just let him go. And he's living up there in the graveyard. And uh, wow, Whew, what a terrible life. Uh, Jesus asked uh, the, the man, verse 30, what's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Uh, the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission and when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. That was the first case of someone uh, producing deviled ham. Um, oh, I, sorry. I'm sorry. It just it was getting kind of quiet and heavy in here. And, I, I just get all, all right. 
When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to see Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And what should they have said? Fantastic. The guy used to live here, and, you know, when he was a boy, he was okay, and then now he's okay. That's awesome, Jesus. But is that what happened? What does it say? They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. So Jesus got in the boat and prepared to leave. You know, there are some people that think they want God in their life, but they want a God that they can control. And when God really just acts like God in their life, they don't want him. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. Yeah, I bet he did. Like, why would he want to stick with these people? But Jesus sent him away saying, go home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. The best evangelists are not those who know their Bibles well. The best evangelists are not those who can quote chapter and verse. The best evangelists are those whom Jesus has delivered from terrible things. Those whose chains have been broken. Those whose demons have fled. The best evangelists of those are those who have been rescued by Jesus himself. I say that because there are some of you here who feel like your past bondage and your past behaviors have disqualified you from representing Christ. Your shame keeps you from sharing. And I'm telling you, you're being lied to. Not by people. It's you're in your own head. You are the best evangelists that Cornerstone has to offer the East Bay. Our East Bay neighbors are not the least bit interested in hearing Bible stories. They want to experience a powerful God, a rescuing God, a healing God, a God who speaks to wind and waves, a God who commands demons to flee. So any of you whom Jesus has rescued must lead the way as we offer Christ to our neighbors. You've got to somehow convince yourself that your story is our sermon and your story needs to be told. Any among us who have been truly saved, truly delivered, truly freed from the demons of addiction and mental illness and fatal diseases, any of us who have gone from debilitating fear to unshakable faith, any of us who have personally experienced the power of God to save need to step forward and lead the way. And the rest of us will will stand in your shadow as you lead the East Bay to Christ. Your story will be a hundred times more effective than any sermon I could ever preach, making me the coach, not the preacher. You're the preacher. Tell your story. What have you seen him do? What aspects of his power have you personally witnessed? Share that. 
I'll give you a few scriptures to put with it, to round it out. But the bottom line is, let you be the message. Somebody's hearing this and, 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 and struggling with it because you just can't picture yourself in that position. Well, it's time for you to grow into that position like the disciples had to grow into that position. It's time for you, you know, you want to just get in the boat with the disciples and just be one of the guys after Jesus released you from the demons. And he says, no, you're not just one of the guys. Peter grew up as a nice Sunday school boy. You, however, you, however, are ready to preach. Peter, won't we be ready to preach for another year and a half? You're ready to preach this afternoon. So let's get on with it. All right. You ready to go home or you want to do the rest of chapter 8? Go home? Chapter 8? Okay. Uh, look at verse 40. I knew what you were going to say. Verse 40, a different situation. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So now you go from Jesus dealing with a complete social outcast and rescuing him after the guy fell at his feet to now the community leader, Jairus, is falling at his feet. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to hear stories about Jesus like, oh, he always went to the down and outers. He always went to, no, he also went to community leaders or they came to him. And this guy is as helpless as the demon-possessed guy was to solve his own problems because his daughter, and this guy would have had any resource available to him. The, the synagogue leader is the leader of the town. He's the mayor. But his daughter is dying. His, tw his precious 12-year-old daughter is not going to see age 13. And so he humbles himself before the powerful rabbi. Please, he says, please come to my house. So Jesus headed for his house. And as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. So other, uh, other gospel writers tell us uh, that uh, she had uh, exhausted all of her financial resources with doctors and cures. And, of course, back then, her condition, uh, well, there wouldn't be a surgical hysterectomy for 1,800 years after this story in Europe. So her situation is not solvable. So she's uh, been bleeding now for 12 years. So she's anemic. She's weak. Um, just vulnerable to other diseases. The fact that she's coming, uh, approaching Jesus by herself without her son approaching Jesus, her father, her husband. Uh, she's alone in this scenario. Um, the Old Covenant, fortunately Jesus came to replace this, but in the Old Covenant... Uh, a woman in this condition wasn't supposed to enter the temple because of the blood. Uh, a woman in this condition was uh, kept away from certain uh, fellowship at the synagogue because she was considered cursed by God because the, the, the monthly bleeding hadn't stopped for 12 years. So something's wrong with her. So that's how everybody treated her. Something's wrong with you. And that's how she felt about herself, uh, except on this day, um, she came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. 
So she's going to try to sneak in and grab a healing and sneak out. Um, she doesn't want any attention. She's had enough attention for the last 12 years, especially from um, religious people. But she has somehow heard the prophecy of Malachi. Uh, and Malachi, the last prophet before the prophecies went silent for 400 years, had said, watch for uh, the anointed one to come and he'll have healing in his wings. And coincidentally, after that, uh, men begin to wear prayer shawls, and uh, when you would hold up your prayer shawl, uh, they would call the part that hung down your wings, uh, and you'd cover your head to pray, and it was, they're beautiful, these prayer shawls. They still use them, and uh, you have tassels hanging down from the shawls. You may know an Orthodox Jew that has tassels that, that hang down uh, over their pants. So it was understood that when Messiah came, the, uh, he would have healing in these tassels. Just He would be carrying healing. And so she uh, slipped through the crowd and got down low and reached in to just to touch these tassels, believing that uh, she could obtain healing by doing this, which she did. Then Jesus says, wait, who touched me? And Peter said, Jesus, everybody's touching you. Come on, can we keep moving here? And Jesus like, thank you, Peter. Appreciate the wisdom there. Jesus said, someone touched me. The power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So let's be clear. Jesus didn't stop and call for who touched him because he was angry or he wanted to somehow shame her. Jesus wanted her to be identified because he already knew that he had healed her and he wanted her to identify herself so that the community would know that she's now been healed and she could enter back into fellowship. Um, and uh, maybe someone would want to marry her. Maybe she could bear children. Uh, and Jesus is honoring her, especially the way he speaks to her. Daughter, he says, which is the most honoring thing you could say to a Jewish woman in the first century. Daughter of Abraham is what he's saying. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith healed you, not my tassels. Your faith pulled healing from me. And, of course, she's so different than those people in Nazareth who couldn't receive that. And she pulled healing from Jesus. And, you know, that's what we do when we need healing. We reach out. And we pull the healing in faith. We, it's, the healing is there. And then in faith we pull for it to see if the Lord is going to heal us um, that day. He, he doesn't always heal us, but he rarely heals people who don't have faith. And so our faith is what often activates the healing power of God in our lives. And uh, so this is what happens with her. And it's a powerful thing. But poor Jairus, he's standing there through this whole encounter. And the clock is ticking. And sure enough, um, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus. Your daughter's dead, they said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Wow. So he immediately is just reeling. And Jesus hears that. And he says to Jairus, don't be afraid. In other words, hang on to your faith. Just believe, and she will be healed. Now, how in the world can he do that? I mean, 
Hang on to your faith, dad. Your 12-year-old daughter, your only daughter, who you've just heard is dead. Just hang on to your faith. That's what, just hang on to your faith. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he didn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Time and again in Luke's gospel, Jesus will prove himself to be a wonderful savior. Today, by calming the storms, by scaring the demons away, by healing a woman who doctors had given up on, and by raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead. So I ask you, what do you need from Jesus today that only Jesus would be able to provide? There are some of us, and, and you know, when I ask that question, you try, you're trying to think of something because you want to have an answer. But that's not who I'm talking to right now. I'm talking to those who have been thinking about it the entire time I've been preaching. Could Jesus calm my storm? Could Jesus heal my mental illness? Could Jesus cast my, those demons away that bother me? Could Jesus heal me of this thing that's plagued me for years? Could Jesus bring back my child after I lost them? Well, I'm here to tell you that he can. I don't know what he will do, but I'll tell you what he can do. And for your, your, your job in this is to have faith. Jesus said, if you have just a little tiny amount of faith, that's enough faith, but you've got to have at least a little tiny amount of faith. And what we do when we gather as a community is we combine our faith. At the end of every service, we have people come forward, and people, these people who come forward to pray for you are people who have experienced miracles. There are people who prayed before this service for you. I was so glad to see them coming out of that prayer meeting today, knowing that miracles could happen in this room today. You don't even have to be in this room. You could be just watching online. And something in you is stirring that may have not stirred for a long time. And what that is is faith. It's combined with hope. Where you're hoping that if you were to reach out in faith, God could provide. So I'm going to do something right now as I pray. We're going to all just close our eyes just so that we close out the distraction. And then those of us who need it are going to reach our hands out like that woman reaching out to Jesus and as if we're grabbing for something. We're going to reach out as if we're, as if we're grabbing. And that, that reaching out is the exercise of our faith to say, Lord, here's my situation. Here's my problem. Here's my... Uh, you notice everyone whose problem was solved in the situation, they didn't have to tell Jesus what the problem was. He knew. But in, but in saying, you know... Uh, sometimes that helps. Lord, here's the situation. I don't know where my son is today. The last time I heard from him, he was on the street and addicted to drugs. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to... The doctors are, are really having trouble uh, figuring out how to fix my situation. I, I, I've taken a lot of Ill, uh, medication for mental illness, and it just seems like I get worse. I, I don't know... Uh, 
Lord, there's a huge storm brewing at work. And I, I don't know how we're going to... Lord, there's a, my, my, my family is in turmoil today. So I'm in turmoil. Friend, just reach out now. Let's reach out. Let's ask the Lord. Let's ask the Lord. Let's, let's grab the hem of his garment and hang on and pray for the release of power to solve this problem. And we pray that right now, Lord Jesus. We believe in you. You're still a miracle-working God. Heal us. Deliver us. Calm the storm. In Christ's name. In Christ's name. Jesus.